the special ed classes were segregated. They were in an outbuilding, they were off to the far edge, and so kind of out of sight, out of mind. And if you take that a little further to the institutional settings, really out of sight, out of mind, so much out of mind that the abuses that happened, people really didn't know about till something really bad. back to another episode of the Mind Melt podcast where we focus on opening our minds through interesting conversation and destroying our biases in the process. Today my guest is Azel Florinina and she is the founder of the Rainbow Players and Empowerment Through the Arts. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. Oh thank you for asking. So my first question for you is does theater help people labeled as disability build self-confidence? Well I think it does and I think it does because I've seen it. And I saw it, I'll just give you a really quick example. When I first started the program back in the kind of late 90s where theater was a part of it, this one young man um, who started out the high school, he's still in my program, this is over 20 years, so now he's in his early 40s. He, um, someone in my office at Amherst Leisure Services said, oh, did you know that that Chris came out, tried out for community theater. I said, no. And so I was just so happy that I wasn't necessarily a part of making that happen for him. Yeah, he made that choice himself. He made that choice, and and he went out and did it. And so I've seen it that kind of opened my eyes to pay attention to those little signs. So another woman who starred in the first one, her name was Joanne. And when she first came in the program, big woman, uh, but she's like a big teddy bear, and and but she would lean in with her little and her head down, and she'd go, Joanne, just a little voice. Within months, she was talking sentences to us, mm. and I think it was I, the only thing I can think of, like her house, it, what they called that then is uh, home sharing. So she lived with a couple on a farm. She didn't live in like housing with a bunch of people. That was her family group. And they said, oh, Joanne's um, really getting frustrated. I said, well, are you listening to her? And and I think that was what happened for her. She really got listened to. And so in a lot of ways from, now Chris is super verbal on the autism Mm -hmm. spectrum to Joanne who had little speech and then boom, all of a sudden it's there and I think she just stopped because people wouldn't listen long enough to try to get what she was saying. And through theater, she was given a voice and like an opportunity to be listened to. Not only a voice, she always chose. So in our first show, she, and this was at Amherst High School, we did a show about all the fairy tale forest characters. And I said, okay, if you were one of the characters, who would you be? And different ones, you know, the big bad wolf, Robin Hood, various things so then we're we're picking we're gonna make masks and it's all about nature and all this stuff and taking care of the earth and and I figure we're gonna make these masks she wants to make a whale (laughs) because she loved whales so in my role as okay I'm gonna like honor 
your creative idea, we made a whale for her. In her part of the play, it was the song was, today I'm a bird, tomorrow a tree, yesterday I was a fish in the sea. And so there's another guy who his cap, his hat was a toucan. So it was on a baseball cap with a big beak. And he also had speech problems, but he's Cambodian and was beaten trying to escape Cambodia. So he was in his 30s when he first came to us. Loved dancing, loved kind of doing Elvis and uh, Michael Jackson dances. He's a great dancer. And so Hao Lee was the bird and then someone else was the tree. They would do this little dance and she would dance her, her whale. So, so she would be that and then in later years, we, I took them all to go see a um, community theater production of Beauty and the Beast. Okay. So then she, in our improv, she was like, the beast. She would take her hand and make it into a claw, like a power motion. And so, okay, we had to, I made her a role in our social justice theater formats that we would do. Like, who's going to save the day? the beast so joanne would come in and she would be the strong one to save the day okay so it seems like joanne was able to give the freedom to build her own characters and mm. she really took them on and that kind of maybe helped her develop herself or even just you know have fun and have an environment where she's included i think so yeah i think so i i saw it like that and in fact years a couple of years she moved you know with a lot of these people who who are part of the state uh, special needs system now they call it, it used to be called DMR uh, and now it's for mental retardation and they cut that out and now it's called Department of Developmental Services or DDS and so they'll move them around into different housing and so she got moved. So you think that giving opportunities to those people who are often overlooked can open doors to them in different aspects of life that aren't theater? I do because I think that when they're you know it's kind of like this one guy who um, started with me at the beginning, he's a little older than I am. He loves doing Elvis impersonations. So he said, oh, I like doing dead rock stars. But Elvis was his main thing. And you think about who's Elvis. Elvis was not like a demure kind of small person. He was no, big. Big, upbeat person. Big, upbeat, and like, wow. And in fact, his, I would have to really coach him. Oh, would Elvis do it like that? Wouldn't he like swing his hips a little or something? He's almost just like larger than life. Larger than life. And so Lee would say, oh, I've been here all my life and people don't even say hello to me on the street. So the way I began, it didn't just begin with me doing theater with them. It began with peers um, partnering. So a peer who doesn't have a label of a disability, similar age group, partnering with that person they would do things out in the community. And then once a month, I would have this open mic cabaret. And it was from that open mic cabaret that I saw, wow, these guys love performing. Yeah. And so it was there from that I saw that, okay, I'll start teaching theater classes for them. And for quite a number of years, we had people from the community come and be involved through our whole process of creating a play and performing it and so it was inclusive in that way. Yeah, why do you think these peer groups like help them kind of be ready for the theater? Because in the old days, 
like we were talking before we turned everything on, the special ed classes were segregated. They were in an outbuilding. They were off to the far edge and mm-hmm. so kind of out of sight, out of mind. And if you take that a little further to the institutional settings, really out of sight, out of mind, so much out of mind that the abuses that happened, people really didn't know about till something really bad happened. They were just like brushed under the table? Well, they were to some degree, yes. And the people doing it just kind of sat back and, oh, someone else is taking care of them. There was no special ed law. There was nothing supporting the schools to make it happen. But saying that, even when I graduated with my master's in 2017, the woman behind me standing in line, we're in Cambridge waiting to get our diplomas. She was special ed getting her master's. And she said, oh, my principal does not want me to identify any children with special needs because then it's on the school to pay for all that accommodation for them. So it's still happening in some ways. Yeah, the law is there, but the money isn't really there to support the schools as it could be, as it needs to be. You know, it's not that that's reality. Everybody matters. They all matter and they all have, have their worth, which is what my goal of all my programs are. And that's why I say empowerment is that everyone has worth no matter what your appearance or your ability is or looks like. Um, it's about what's the, on the inside rather than the outside. Yeah, so we started with these peer partnering, and it kind of it worked for about three years. And if you know about best buddies, that's kind of yeah. what they do. But it's a little artificial, and I'm, I'm glad my guys who take it, they like it, but... I think the longer-lasting effect is this kind of a thing where we're really digging into what what are the wounds. And that's what our first few years of work were all about, like bullying and, you know, what what has gone on in your life that that really you ended up feeling really bad. Bringing up the past trauma that's playing an impact on their life today and maybe like how they feel about their own self-worth. Exactly. And but the thing about it, it's, um, it's a form of theater called um, Theater of the Oppressed that was designed by a Brazilian director called Augusto Boal. And so that's a form that we started with early on in 98-99. Um, that's 1998-99. And, and that form of theater is basically taking a, a situation of oppression, playing it out, the audience becomes involved by asking the audience, the second time through you play this scenario, you play it through once, as is. The person tells the story before you act it out, and but they aren't themselves. They don't act themselves. And this is to this point that you just made. The trauma, if they played themselves all over again in that scenario where they're being uh, bullied, it can re-traumatize. Yeah. But if they're the bully in Lee, who I just told you about earlier, who played Elvis, he talked about a a situation in high school where these boys would say, oh, oh, yeah, we'll be your friends if you take all our trays after lunch. And so they would say, slave, take my tray. And he would do it because he wanted friendship. And so when he told that story and he became 
the guy he wore a bomber jacket and all this cool stuff and then he goes slave will you please take my tray i said mm. is that how they said it is that how this guy said it to you no i said well, can you make it a little stronger so by the time we did it he's like slamming his fist on the table saying slave take my tray and so one of our actors would be him he's already told us the story we knew what happened and then the audience would watch it, and the second time through, they would stop the action, and they would make comments about, well, we think we can't change the bully. That's kind of magical thinking. But you can change the person who's oppressed to have a different response. Okay. They can stand up for themselves and say, no, I'm not accepting that anymore. So replaying the situation in like a theater way can actually help process like what actually happened. Yeah, it processes it, and it gives... It, especially with the solution giving from the from the audience, they have different ideas than than even we have thought of. And so that idea, then if you're in a situation again, you might be inspired to do it a different way. And that form, Theater of the Oppressed, grew this director, he, he married, a, his wife was a psychologist, so years later he created a new form called Rainbow of Desire. Basically, you run the scene, but you don't, we don't just do the same kind of thing. We say to the person who's oppressed, well, what did you feel? And then people in the audience would, would show either fists or, you know, acting like they want to choke that person. Like, what was the feeling? And then just show it with your body. Yeah. And so they would show it with their body. And then the person who had the situation would say, well, where would you place them in the scene? And they would come and take their spot in the scene. And then eventually you take out the person who had the story, who was oppressed in that scenario. And all you have are his, are that his or her emotions that are going to, express themselves. And, and I was in a workshop with Boal, and he would say, okay, everyone talk at once. All these emotions, like one emotion might, might be, I can't believe you're still saying that to me. It's, you're so cruel, or whatever th that thought is. Or, you know, oh, I'd just like to smack you or something. And then he said, okay, everyone talk at once. And then he would clap, and he'd point to a person and then they would have to just say whatever was coming out. So it was really authentic. That is a really amazing process that I think would be great with youth in care, um, prison situations, anything, because it, it gets at those deeper feelings. And that one really does help yeah. build that self-confidence that, oh, next time, it gives you a sense of, all the layers of no and especially with a traumatic event like that like our first instinct is usually to like push it away and push it down and that can actually make the trauma worse but if we're like coming at it and reliving it in like a less painful way in a more like um expressive way yeah uh, you can start to like whittle down at that trauma a little bit and like see it from a different perspective yeah that's the key seeing it from see it from a different perspective anytime we can step back and see something um, with a with new person. eyes so so yeah it's a very it's a very powerful form but that's how we built the theater group was based on all those stories and finally years later they wanted to do so your group has worked done a lot of workshops uh, for schools about bullying and discrimination 
So how does getting bullied as a young person affect someone's perception of themselves and maybe their self-worth? I think, you know, the bullying can happen from so many uh, levels. It can be racial, it can be appearance, you can be heavy, uh, you could walk funny and, you know, be termed cerebral palsy. This one woman in the group, she was called chicken legs in high school because she was thin and she kind of wobbled when she walked. And so that, those name calling and and but what they say with bullying is that it takes 45 seconds for a really hard-edged bullying act to happen. And it's more often not witnessed by any adults. And so, you know, that, but it still has power because it, it's, they, they're kind of free to do it. No one's stopping them because no one witnesses it or it's done off in some corner. It's done around power, stealing lunch money or threats or yeah, yeah, I'll be your friend if you do this and blah, blah. And so until someone really kind of steps back from it and sees it as something that doesn't have to keep defining them and so in, with me, with my group, I saw early on there were people who had really bad feelings about, I had heard about one woman in the group, about anyone, anything saying disabled, anything printed referring to her as disabled, she would just tear it up, throw it away. Smart woman, really smart woman. The uh, WFCR did um, an interview with us. And when they introduced it, I was playing the interview for the group before our rehearsal, and it said, the intro was, disabled actors performing a show at Amherst High School, and we've got an interview with a couple of the actors. Well, first of all, she's like shaking her head no and pointing to herself, like, who are they talking about? And I, they listened to the interview, and I said, yeah, people seem to need to refer to you as disabled and I seem to understand you don't want that anymore is that right and they said no we don't need that anymore I said yeah maybe it was helpful at the beginning to get you extra help in school but right now it's not helpful anymore they said yeah and in fact one of the interviewer wanted to specifically name one of the guys as disabled because he was so verbose and able to say whatever he wanted to say, and the other was more hesitant. The other had some speech difficulties because of a head injury. They wanted to name his disability. I said, well, no, that didn't come up in the interview. I don't think he would want that, that you somehow, oh, well, we probably wouldn't have done the interview if they weren't disabled. <laughs> Really? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, to me, that's the main problem with the word. You know, the word is dis and then ability. In the old days, that dis would be spelled D-Y-S, and that means problem. Just even dyslexia. Dyslexia means problem with language. That's what the meaning of that word is. You have a problem with, it's a big general word. Well, disability, you have a problem with ability. Then that says Ability is at high level. Ability is you're all good. Disability is, oh, you lack something. And so it, it's, it's such a long history. It, you know, you have to go all the way back to eugenics. But when eugenics came along, eugenics was this theory. It was the brother of Darwin in England who kind of said, oh, 
here's this theory of uh, this genetic pool, and if you have this kind of range of characteristics that look different than what we're calling perfect, blue eyes, blonde hair or dark hair, but you know, smart and intelligent, and you're somewhere on this other lower range, then uh, they gave themselves permission to do all kinds of sterilizations, and that's where institutionalization came along and in the 1920s and all across the country, it, big institutions. Somehow, England didn't quite go as far as the U.S. did. And in fact, when the eugenics society kind of went underground was when it was shown that Hitler glommed onto that and his first thousand killings were of people with disabilities in a in a gas chamber and so hitler had invited people from the eugenics society in the u.s over and lauded their wonderful research and and there were oliver wendell holmes uh teddy roosevelt there were major big figures in our history who who believed that to be true, who believed that you could clean up the genetics and only have people ha reproducing who had certain approved characteristics and they would never, that you could basically, I guess, create a society like Hitler believed that, that would only have the perfect race, perfect, the pure race or whatever. But that went underground very fast. The eugenic society just all of a sudden was, they had fairs all over the country at wow. the county fairs. They would give prizes to the perfect looking family. And this was in the 20s, 20s and 30s. You can find you know, research on that. And it's pretty shocking when we look at it now, but that's kind of early roots of that thinking of there's, there's kind of not, they're not as good. And so we don't have to, it's impossible to try to fix it. Mm -hmm. And that idea was like seated in our society and then it just carried over at like a lesser scale into our institutions and our schools. And it still really hasn't gone away. It still really hasn't gone away, no. And it, in fact, if you think about it, you know, how often do you see people out in the world who are very clearly either have some kind of disability that you can recognize that you know, you, often you'll see them with their parents or they'll be with staff people, but they don't have, as, I mean, there's so many taboos on, and so many kind of protections put in that particular community of people that they still aren't seen as people with uh, the ability to have the same kinds of hopes and dreams that we have. They're not giving the independence and the freedom as everyone else is. Well, they're not, but they're also not giving, you know, like you and I, we might go to a yoga class or we might go to, um, uh, we might tune into a podcast or, or talk on our mental well-being or into our, our nutritional health and better ways to be. In those settings, People aren't paid enough. The hours, they change your jobs a lot. They don't get to go have their own, you know, getting to do what they'd like to do. So I, I just try to keep talking to them about, you know, what, what do you want? How could, what do you dream Give to do? ideas of other possibilities rather than the reality right now. Yeah, and that, you know, you don't have to 
just settle to be uh, do carriages and bagging groceries at the local grocery store. You're a smart person. There's all kinds of disability supports at community college level, for instance. Why not go to one of those and get those supports and do something? Learn a trade or learn, you know, go and, and get that extra support. But that kind of self-concept is so low, but sometimes it's not just them, it's the parents that believe they're a lower ability. It's the whole support system. It's the whole support system, and, and I'm seen as kind of some kind of radical because I believe they have a higher possibility and that they're, whatever we dream to, you know, either achieve something in our lives as a, a skill or trade or life purpose, or a partnership that they're just not seen as as that being any option for them. And definitely, we definitely should because we should all be given equal opportunities in our free society to go after what we want and achieve what we can. People with like disadvantages, as we're talking about, like one thing they could really do is they can inspire other people who have similar things to you know take take control of their life. That could be something that they do. It's easy to say that. And I can say it, you know, you have a right to do this and you have a right to this or that, but they've spent their whole lives believing differently. Even within a week or so ago, I heard from one of them, oh, well, we're just morons. Well, moron was a category. It was a diagnostic category in those times of eugenics to label people going into the institutions. They would. They'd go through this, this um, I think it's called the Stanford Binet intelligence test, and the higher level people would be called moron, idiot, imbecile, moron. Imbecile was the middle. Idiot was probably very little ability to speak, or if, if at all, um, move, whatever, but probably in, intellectually couldn't communicate at all imbecile was next and then moron was and in fact the institutions and you can find it in this book the state boys rebellion by michael d'angelo he 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 states he shows how the institutional uh, superintendents wanted to have for some reason he has it listed as 38 percent so you think about it, it's almost 40 percent of the people in that institution at the level of moron because then they could do the jobs they could do laundry, they could do farm work, they, so they wouldn't have to hire as many staff. They could clean up messes, and that's what they did. And I said, I said when I heard that a couple weeks ago, I said, no, that is so wrong. You are not that label. You are in, intelligent and brilliant, and you should have never heard that spoken to you. But I can say it, and I can say it, but deep down there's still this this belief and this wound inside. I don't know what changes that. I don't know. I mean, we all go through something to change those those ideas that people have said about us or you're this or that. Yeah, and when that experience is compounding like time after time and time, it starts mm. to develop a deeper and deeper belief. Yeah. And then it becomes part of your identity and it's very hard to let go of that. Yeah. Get rid of that. And I, I don't even know if it's possible to do that fully. I mean, yes, you can get encouragement and um, 
have different experiences, but all of those experiences are still there. They still make up your life. They do. And I think for myself, you know, growing up in a large family and kind of being different, uh, growing up in Texas and, you know, choosing a kind of a different way of thinking than a lot of my brothers and sisters. But it took a long time for me, you know, even just to get out of the hole that I got dug into. And I'm an able-bodied, you know, white woman you know i think the ancestry there's native in there there's cherokee and that but it's you know we have to dig into the past to find it but basically you know had a certain privilege out in the world and yet yeah i struggled and what helped me dig out of that was personal like affirmations was going through a process and doing it on a regular basis. I mean, if you've ever been in my house, you'll see all these like um, vision boards. Yeah, positive thinking on my refrigerator. You know, your life is blessed or something. Or uh, we do one a Navajo prayer that turned it into a song that is basically um, "I walk in beauty." That's a Navajo prayer. I walk in beauty. Beauty is before me. Beauty is behind me, above me, below me. Beauty is inside of me. And so, and I tell them, you're all beautiful. So I try to do that song on a regular basis. And then I'll share, okay, when you look in the mirror, say I love and approve of myself. That's like a great affirmation. And the woman who is really the queen of affirmations out in the world started these in the early 70s. And uh, Louise Hay And she said, you need to do that in front of a mirror. You need to do that 400 times a day. Whenever you feel bad about something, say, I love and approve of myself. Because that's how we learn, is making mistakes. And so you need to approve that, oh, I made a mistake and I noticed it. Good, maybe I won't do it again the next time. Maybe I can learn from it. Maybe you learn from it. Yeah, there's this one woman named Mel Gibson. I don't know if you've heard of her. No. But um, her thing is like the high five habits. So basically, she was going through a rough period in her life, and she began this thing where every day before the mirror, she would just look at herself in the mirror and give herself a high five. Uh-huh. It didn't happen right away, but slowly over time, she could start seeing like changes in her life, and she could see, I'm showing up for myself more. Uh, I'm doing better things because I'm appreciating myself. I love it. I'm going to steal it. Because I think some of the people that, that I are in my group could maybe relate to that a little better than saying I love and approve of myself. It's kind of a long statement. And just doing a high five to yourself, is, is, it says it in itself. I love it. So the Rainbow Players recently did a performance about the history of mental institutions at the Belchtown State School. Um, so why is it so important that we remember these children's stories and what happened to them? Oh, wow. It, 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 I just, it's so important. In, in fact, for this play, that we did, and, and it was a staged reading. What I'm hoping for next year is to do a full production. And in that site, we didn't have electricity. Electricity was in a building 500 feet away, or yards, it was really far. It was just not gonna work to string a cord or electrical you know, cables that far. And so I had to cut it back, cut it back. And so, um, we did the stage reading, but one of the players 
in the play, in our stage reading, was a man who had lived there from age nine until 19. I was talking about him earlier. And he he's an amazing, I suggest you invite him sometime. He's very well-spoken and really can tell his story. And it's a really important story, And but I had to tell him at times before we did the play, he doesn't read because he really, at age nine, he was brought in and he didn't get the benefit of real school. And so he'll, he tells his story, but he had horrible things happen. You know, anything you can imagine that you hear of happens to, you know, people in prison or mental hospitals, that kind of, you know, sexual and physical abuse had happened. And he's told me stories and I said, oh, you know, I know that's true. And I'm worried that if you tell all that detail, that there'll be someone in the audience who also experienced that and it would re-traumatize them listening to it. And so, you know, he, he took that in. And in fact, there were people in the audience who had lived there. One guy who was a few years older than him, than him and he, he was like his big brother, and he took care of him. If he saw things happening to him, he came over and, and staff or older residents or whoever, he stood up for him and got them away from him. So. He acknowledged him in the audience, but then I heard later after the show that uh, there was a woman who someone lived with the person talking to me, and she said she didn't want to come because she thought it would bring up too many too many memories for her. And so I know that happens, but it's so important so it doesn't happen again. I think that's the main thing is that too many. I knew a man who he had experiences so horrible he could not, nobody could be anywhere near him when he took a shower. He smoked about five packs a day, which I think he probably, he eventually quit. He was very um, significant in terms of a volunteer at the survival center, Amherst Survival Center. Um, They loved him. They loved him. He died young. I think probably because of all the smoking. And um, he was so surprised when the guy I was with uh, for a few years, even after my friend, my boyfriend, when he quit the job, he continued to be friends with this guy. And and David say, well, be, remember to charge for your mileage. And he'd say, Dave, I'm not, this isn't work. I'm your friend. I'm doing this because I'm your friend. And he had never had that, that someone would just be there for him. because yeah, like transactional relationship. Exactly. That's a that's exact word is transactional. And um, he had just never experienced it. And it continued for, you know, until his death. A lot of kids who were put there in, in the state school outside of Boston, sometimes they were wards of the state because the families were too poor and couldn't take care of them. And so, but they're in this environment. That was the only environment that was available. And and it was cruel because there was no real oversight. People were very cruel to them, especially Fernald, which is the state boys' rebellion. And the story told in that book is so amazing that they basically held a rebellion in 1959. They had been watching the, the riots in L.A., the race riots, and and basically said, they had just gotten a TV, and they said, okay, we're gonna have our own riot. 
and they told the two staff members in their rec building what they were going to do, and those staff members didn't want to get involved, so they left. And it was also a place where people got put in isolation, so they broke out the people in isolation. They, they piled mattresses against the doors and lit them on fire. Wow. And so uh, everyone, so the fire trucks had to come in, the police, all these, these official groups had to come in and monitor and saw what was going on, basically because they had this riot, the State Boyles Rebellion, and from their accounts in this book, these are first-person accounts, they said it got better after that. Yeah, and he tells stories of different people, and this I'm sure true of Belchertown too, where different people tried to make an impact. You know, they had the job there, and, and they, they felt, they saw the things going on, they didn't, they tried to make a change, and it just didn't go anywhere or not far enough. And because they did this really big thing that brought in the fire trucks, brought in the police, all this stuff, all of a sudden there's, they're finding out all of the stuff that was going on. And, you know, the guys that did it got really severely punished and got put into a, a really bad institution in Boston and eventually came back. But um, some things changed. But, you know, it's just sad that it had to go to that length before something would change. Before these people were held accountable for what they were doing. Yeah, and, and they're still not being held accountable. And that was our, our play. The focus of the play was that it starts out with the court scene, and the people, and it was a grand jury trial. So, if, so the grand jury were all the actors in my group. They're sitting in the grand jury, and the guy who lived there is the judge even had a gavel, he would go, you know. And so then the audience are the defendants. The audience are all the people who, through all those years, through those 70 years, 1922 to 1992, drove by and looked at this huge acreage of brick buildings, you know, beautiful, you know, grounds. Oh, isn't that nice? And they drive on past. No one goes, and, and many of the families never even went back and saw their children. One woman after the play in another town in Wendell said, oh, I saw your play, and, and it broke my heart because when I was really little, my brother got put there, and we never saw him again. And she said he's buried there in, in that cemetery. She said, but my parents, it's like, like we erased him. And so I'm sure that's painful for her over just looking at that and thinking about it but but that's it people were not held and in some ways i think there's a class action suit there somewhere you know if i don't have it in me to to like go there but but if enough people come see the play and and get that message that yeah this should not be just overlooked and oh oh poor you but be forgotten not forgotten no and so telling the truth about what happened in the whole institutional setting is another part and telling the truth about uh, the holocaust and everything it's it's important so we don't let it play out again and right now we're in such a weird time where there's such a huge part of the government that believes they can just hold forth on any kind of an idea or lie and and we're just gonna let it go by no we can't let it go by and telling the stories of the past is a way to move forward 
And if we don't know the stories of the past, we're going to be ignorant on issues today, uh, especially in race and also regarding people with disabilities. Yeah. If we don't know what actually happened, and then in today's world, we're making judgments and stuff when we don't know the full story. Yeah. No, that's exactly it. And and once you know the full story, people will see that that something light turns on. They knew someone in school. Oh, they remember they had this opportunity and they didn't take it. They weren't nice to some kid next to them or, you know, in their school. So something clicks. And then when the next time they have more insight, the next time they see someone in a store, someone bagging groceries, they're kinder to them. They're not, you know, with one guy in my group, he does bagging groceries and stuff but he's so responsible and he so much understands the work ethic and this customer came and and hadn't put their cloth bags up there so everything had already gotten bagged it's when plastic was still okay then all of a sudden they're demanding that it all get rebagged into their cloth bags there's a long line at the counter and this guy is trying to explain explain well I'm sorry but if you had put your bags up there, we would have done it. This person looks past him because he kind of stutters and wouldn't, couldn't say his speech really smoothly and quickly and starts talking just to the cashier and not to him. So right away, just that act erases him. Like whatever he's saying to them, it doesn't matter. It makes him feel small. Makes him feel small. And yet, the you know, the staff and the, the people luckily at that store are really great and they see his worth. But we had to play that out in a scene to really understand what that was for him. And he felt better after that. You know, he played that customer because he saw it, he felt it, and he can like throw it better than we can. So, um, yeah, it's so important to tell the story. And then hopefully the institutions and, and all of this, this kind of way of treating people as different and less can fall by the wayside. But on the other hand, the bullying curriculums, when I look at those that are in the schools, they're mostly about punishing the bully. Oh, we're going to be you know, fast, fast acting. Well, a bully is a kid that acts that way for a reason. And to me, that's a problem with those programs is, and there's a program in Canada called, I think it's called Heart of Empathy. And they bring a baby into the classroom of an elementary school. Children start for like six months to a year. They, they get to, all of them, observe the emotions of this baby and they name the emotions and they get connected and connect with each other, but their heart gets connected with this idea of empathy. And so I, I haven't written the curriculum yet, but it's kind of on my list, is to write a curriculum that, that really embodies um, probably some of the social justice theater playing out of scenarios along with how to be empathetic and that's kind of what we did at the elementary school was do a story about you know how can you choose to be kind when other kids want to play with you instead of just saying no you can't play and running away with the ball or whatever that you you take a second look and you go oh yeah we can find a way to do that yeah it sounds like a really good idea for a curriculum and it could be helpful in everyday bullying situations 
My question to you is, what is holding you back from writing this curriculum? Oh, money, money. And, you know, I thought about, I hear all these people that, oh, I wrote a book during the pandemic or, you know, I did this. And I, I think, wow, I do have um, a book or two in me. And, um, and in a way, I have a good part of the book because I have so many grants that I've written. And I've had to write all of this background for why I'm applying for the money and why it's important. And this last one that I just finished on Friday was a great one for that because they asked a lot of deep questions about why, you know, what would you do if you got the money? And, and so it gives you a chance to really, like, pour it out. And, and I have to just pull back and say, okay, I'm not writing it for the money. I'm writing it for them. Well, and, and so that the person reading it learns something about, about what, what this is about. And so I, I do it more as a, eventually when I get out of the worry, oh, am I going to say it right? Am I going to do this well enough? Then I just, it's, when I do auditions, I would say, okay, I'm doing an audition and it's a gift. They're getting to see me do this and I'm not going to worry what their response is going to be. Same thing with writing all this text for grants. So I, I think what I have is already a good bit of stuff. I have a couple of people who have written memoirs, and they want to get their memoirs published. So I'm, I, I keep doing all that for the other people. So just stopping and doing it for myself, I haven't stopped. I think when this program, this Empowerment Through the Arts, as a nonprofit, and it's a new nonprofit, even though we've been doing this for 22 years, we're only a nonprofit of two years old yeah. now. When that really gets steady and have a good foundation of funding and a base of donors and whatever, then maybe I'll, I'll take a little sabbatical and do a little writing. This was part one of a two-part series with Azelle Florinina. If you enjoyed this conversation or you want to learn more about empowering disabled people through the arts, tune into part two.